0: Blog Talk Radio I'm your host Jeff Godbold, and you're listening to Corrales Radio. Um, we've got a fun show planned for everybody tonight. Uh, we've got a kind of a host that I've been that's been rather reclusive. I've tried to um, get a hold of him, and I think he's tried to get a hold of me, but uh, we keep missing each other, and we have to. Uh, we actually started planning the show uh, back in, uh, geez, I believe it was June or July. And uh, just for whatever reason, our schedules haven't been able to match up. Either he's been out of town or I've been out of town. We keep pushing it back. So I'm glad that we could kind of sync up tonight. Uh, this is going to be fun. Um, as you guys know, I like a lot of species that are outside of the Coralus genus. And uh, this show will not disappoint. If you're into larger colubrids, uh, this will be a fun show. So we've got uh, John Michaels coming on. Uh, some of you may know him from his work with uh, indigo snakes and prevos. Um, he, he's the owner of the company Black Pearl Reptiles, uh, but he also has a, an exceptional colony of Mexican locality tiger rat snakes, uh, which are absolutely beautiful. They're the, uh, the most colorful of the tiger rat snakes, in my opinion, and he's also working with all three phase, uh, color phases of the uh, baron eye, the baron's rat snakes or baron's racers, I'm sorry, baron's racers. So both of those species are uh, endemic to Central and South America. Uh, you guys know that I love uh, that region and all the wildlife and fauna that uh, lives down there. So I'm really excited to bring him on because these are two species I've always wanted to work with, and I hope to work with them one day. So this will just be kind of a little bit of a fun show for me to geek out and talk to John about uh, some snakes. And it's cool that he's pretty close to me. So, um, you know, hopefully I'll get a chance to get on down there and and film a little bit of his collection and and maybe uh, bring it to the YouTube channel as well. Um, As you guys know, uh, we do have five different sponsors with Corralis Radio. Uh, I feel super lucky to be partnered up with these companies. Um, It kind of started, as you guys uh, have heard me uh, say in the past, uh, I was a customer of these companies for years. So after doing business with them long enough, I realized that they were all stand-up uh, guides that they uh, either produced uh, a good product and backed it up with exceptional customer service. So I feel like their reputation in the hobby kind of speaks for itself, and I feel like they truly are a good guys. So uh, well, the first of those sponsors is Reptile Basics Incorporated. Rich is awesome. He makes top-notch uh, racks and cages. So if you're looking for a cage or rack manufacturer, his prices are shipped prices. He'll get you taken care of. But he also sells pretty much anything you could need for your collection. So let him know that I sent you and uh, tell him, you know, that, that Jeff referred you and he might be able to hook you up with something. I'm not sure, but he's got great products, great customer service. The next is Pangaea Reptile. Pangaea Reptile, as you guys know, uh, they specialize in geckos, like crested geckos uh, primarily, and they've got some other species of geckos. I, uh, aside from snakes, love bioactive setups, so I have bought from Pangea for a long time. Um, I like bioactive substrates, live plants, you know, misting systems, all that stuff to pretty much make the, uh, the habitat self-sustaining. So uh, Matt over at Pangea Reptile is a great guy. He's got really, really nice geckos if you're into crested geckos or tokay geckos or morning geckos. Uh, or maybe some of the other uh, New Caledonia gecko species. He's got plenty to choose from, fair prices. And if you're into uh, not keeping your geckos in plastic tubs with egg crates and a lay box, I would say cruise over to Pangaea Reptile and uh, check him out. And he's got pretty much anything you can need for revering. That said, he does not sell isopods or springtails, so you will have to go elsewhere for those. Third is Cold-Blooded Cafe. Uh, Forrest Fanning's a personal friend. Um, he produces really, really nice rodents. If you're kind of dissatisfied with your rodent supplier, you're getting in uh, animals that either aren't the weight that you, you expect for what's being advertised, or maybe there's sequel matter within the bag, hit up Forrest. He'll give you a discount on your first order, and uh, he's got great, great customer service. You won't be disappointed. We've also got specialty enclosure designs. He has, uh, you guys know David Brams. I've known him for years in the Condra community. Um, he runs specialty enclosure designs, and they are kind of uh, ways for people to trick out tubs. If you want to keep your animals in tubs, but you don't want to pay the expensive price of a, of a cage, um, you can uh, hit up David, and he'll get you taken care of. He has lots of things uh, for you to choose from, uh, from elevated water dishes, uh, front opening uh, for sliding glass, uh, I guess, sliding glass conversion kits for, for tubs. You can mount them so that you're, you can keep animals in tubs, but you can open them from the front, kind of like a display cage. And lastly, we have shipyourreptiles.com, who really doesn't need any explanation whatsoever. I've used them for years, and they've always been good to me. So all of these companies, you can look them up by their website, or you can go on Facebook check them out. So I would advise you to do that if you're looking for a different supplier for something regarding your reptile collection. So if you want to reach out to us with Coralis Radio, you can do so by going on our website at wwwcoralis radiocom Or you can just email me at Radio at gmail.com. We are on Instagram under my uh, YouTube channel name, which is Exotics. And we are also on Facebook and there's a Corrales Radio Facebook page. Like it and uh, let me know. I'm always curious to hear from people who they want me to bring on. If there is a guest that I have not had or that I've had in the past and you guys would like me to bring them on, I would love to hear from you guys so that I can uh, kind of put some good content out for species I maybe not have covered. They don't have to be corralis as, uh, you know, tonight's perfect example of that. They don't need to be corralis species. So I do like to to cover the off-topic stuff as well. So we've got uh, we've got John on the line so I'm gonna go ahead and bring him on, so he doesn't have to wait any longer. John, are you there? Hey Jeff, what's going on? Hey man, thanks for uh, hello. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you good. Can you hear me? Perfect. Yep. Awesome. So um, <laughs> I kind of was explaining this before you uh, before you called in, but. You know, we've had kind of missed each other, you know, a little bit here and there over the last couple months. I've been in of town, you've been in of town, so I'm glad we were able to sync up and, uh, you know, I'd be able to steal you for, for an hour, hour or so. Yeah, so,
1: absolutely. Thanks for yeah. having me. It'll be a good
0: time. Awesome. Um, before we get into, like, the main topics, maybe, well, so we're going to be talking about Barons Racers tonight, and then I was going to follow up with Mexican Tiger Rats, uh, specifically okay. the Mexican locality, because that's seems to be the one that most people are are kind of um, gravitate to because of the colors but i wanted to pick your brain and let you kind of tell everybody how you got into working with those species not necessarily a reptile introduction but what brought you from when you first started keeping reptiles to where you're at right now what what grabbed your attention to these species specifically
1: well um you know, I, I, I originally, you know, like, like all of us, you know, I've kept reptiles since I was, you know, a little kid and all that sort of thing. And, um, you know, a number of years ago I thought, gee, it'd be pretty cool to get some babies and, um, you know, and then I thought, gee, it'd be pretty cool to kind of sell them, you know, and pay for my feeders. And so I started off with Honda and milk snake morphs. Uh, and I did that for a number of years, but then I was always fascinated by the drum genus. And so, I went out and got some blacktail Krebos uh, and that was just a – that sparked a whole fire. And so um, really the bulk of what I do does center around indigos and crebos uh, with the dry mark on, um, and I've done that for several years. Um, but, you know, and, uh, on, on the side of that, I like to have, you know, little side projects of various things that I'm interested in um, that, uh, that kind of, uh, you know, stray off of that dry mark on path. And so, um, yeah, gosh, uh, maybe 10 years ago, uh, I used to import um, snakes from uh, David Fabius in Uruguay um, who bred uh, Muserana and Baron's Racers. And the Muserana was something I was uh, primarily interested in. Um, I just thought they were just the coolest snakes around. And, uh, he had a, a piebald Muserana that ended up being a co-dominant trait with a super piebald form and all that. So I really wanted to kind of import things for myself. And then I, I, I did that. And then I, um, you know, then turned around and sold, um, you know, animals that I continued to import from him. Um, but kind of, he was throwing other snakes in the box that I was going to sell for him here in the U S and Baron's races were one of them. And, um, so in, that was kind of my first exposure with Barron's Racers, and um, I was just amazed with how cool they are. I mean, they're, they're super alert. Um, they're very, um, despite the name of a, you know, a racer, um, they, they're actually pretty handleable. Um, they're fairly calm. Um, you know, they can, they're flighty and they can move around, but I find them not to be very nippy at all. Um, and they're really easy to take care of. Um, they don't really have any specialized uh, temperature and humidity requirements. You can keep them like any other kind of colubrid. And, um, and I, find them, I found them pretty easy to breed as well. Um, and, uh, you know, in the, in the course of importing from David over a few years, I got green ones, which is kind of the typical coloration. Um, but I also imported a couple of brown ones, which I think are uh, a very underrated, uh, color variation. And, uh, I imported a couple of just these blue ones that were just sky blue. And I, 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 only had two of them and I decided not to keep them for myself, which I think was a mistake at the time. I think I ended <laughs> up selling them somewhere in Canada. Uh, but that was kind of my exposure to them. And after a number of years of doing that, um, I decided for whatever reason in my life to trim back to just really the drum archon for a while. So I got rid of all my Baron's racers only to find that uh, I couldn't handle it. And a few years of being without them, I, I got back into them. And so I found a few blue snakes here and there in the U S um, you know, and back in the time when I was importing them, there weren't any blue ones in the U S uh, that I was aware of anyway. And so, um, now they just sort of pop up here and there, um, and so I, I sort of bought everything I could find that was a blue barons racer, and um, and put together a, a, a pretty big breeding group of uh, blue barons racers, and um, I produced uh, a bunch last year, and I've got uh, a couple of clutches that are actually due to hatch any day right now. So um, they're just super cool, and. You know, uh, it's a really, really neat species to be working with. I like them a lot.
0: Awesome. So uh, we have a we have a question actually. Since you, it's actually about what you were just talking about, and so I'll just use mm-hmm. that to kind of segue into to blue uh, talking about the Barons Racers. But um, Hunter sure. Sheffield uh, sent me a message, and I'll kind of read it to you. He goes, "I was wondering if you could have John hit on the blue morph and the inheritance of it with the Barons Racers." Also, if he is seeing the anim- he wants to know if the- if you're seeing the animals come out more green and color up blue as they age, or what the color progression is with the animals. So I guess okay. he's just kind of wondering. It- well,
1: that's straight to the meat of it because that's kind of what everyone wonders, including myself. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's I- I've read speculation that the blues are actually an exantic morph. Um, where you know you've, you you take a green and you remove the yellow, um, I, I I have not proven that to be the case with what I've done. Um, here's uh, and, and and before I really go any further, a disclaimer that I'm still learning and and really I only have a couple of years of uh, experience, you know, breeding the Barons Racer. So I'm sure there are others with more experience than I have, but. I can tell you what I've learned from what I've done and from what I've uh, talked to about with other breeders. Um, Here's what I've seen. Um, You can breed a blue to a green and get visibly blue babies out of the clutch. You'll also get visibly green babies. Um, I have also learned over the years that you can get a baby that looks greenish when it's first hatched and it can turn blue. I've learned that. I don't know how to explain it, but that's what can happen. Um, okay. I have um, to, to get away from the blue just for a brief moment. You know, the first breeding that I did a decade ago was a green to a brown. And I produced half of the babies were green and half the babies were brown. So my suspicion is that they're just a polymorphic snake and the color of the babies will tend towards the color of the, uh, adults. Um, I don't know necessarily that it is, um, that it's some kind of exantic recessive trait or anything like that. I haven't proven that necessarily. Um, I can tell you that last year I had a few clutches that were from a blue to a blue breeding and both parents, just a dynamite electric blue and, uh, I had half the babies were very visibly blue right out of the egg. I had the other half were kind of more on the green end of the spectrum. And so rather than sell those immediately, I, I, I wanted to learn from what's going on. And so I decided that I was going to keep them all for six months just to see what's going to happen. And lo and behold, all the ones that were sort of green looking turned blue. So, mm. um, In my experience so far, a blue to a blue is going to give you all blue, although some may not look blue right out of the egg. Um, So I should know more in another two weeks when all my clutches this year hatch out, but that was my experience. Now, that being said, the ones that sort of looked kind of green when they were coming out of a blue to a blue breeding, um, they did look different from a typical green. A typical green Barron's racer will often have yellow on the chin and on the side of the neck, these did not have that. They sort of looked uh, They looked a little different than normal. Um, and so maybe there's some kind of marker there or some kind of cue that those are going to be the ones that are going to turn blue. Um, I don't know. Again, I'm still learning. Uh, but it's something that uh, myself and other breeders are trying to kind of figure out and exactly the way that blue color works. So I appreciate Hunter's question. It's
0: certainly relevant. Yeah, I mean, you know, I never... I have no experience working with them, um, but I was a selectively bred thing, you know, as far as the colors go. I didn't really look at it as a morph per se. Um, right. And if well, you're breeding, you know, the, I mean, go ahead.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. What What, what I was going to say no. along that line as far as selective breeding and so forth is that, you know, generally speaking, when you look at selective breeding, you know, you just choose animals that are the, you know, the, the kind of the most blue out of the clutch and breed them and breed them and so forth, you know, selective breeding, line breeding, whatever you want to call it. What's interesting about these is that, you know, I've really only seen a handful of Barons racers over the years that are kind of two different colors at once. Um, you're kind of generally either you're blue or you're not, and you're either green or you're not. And the same is true of the Browns. Um, you know, I've really only seen a couple that are kind of in that in-between, you know, when I think of line breeding or selective breeding, you know, you think of sort of a spectrum of different uh, colors and patterns mm-hmm. that come out and then you just choose to accentuate certain ones, uh, you know, when you're choosing holdbacks to breed later and um, that doesn't really seem to be the case. It's, you. I haven't really seen very many sort of in-between animals, animals that are sort of in-between green and blue Um, you know, there, there certainly are some out there, but it's, uh, I wouldn't, when, if you breed a green snake to a blue snake, you don't really get snakes in the middle. You get one or the other. Right. So it's, it's interesting the way it works out.
0: And hypothetically, I mean, if it was a morph, let's just say for sake of conversation, it is, there's only Mm. so many modes of inheritance that it can be. I mean, you can have, you know, Simple recessive, you can have uh, incomplete dominant, you know. And if and if, let's say if it was not complete dominant, and you're sitting here breeding two blues together, you would, by definition, there would be a super form of whatever that is that you're that you're breeding. So you know, and you're not and you're not seeing that. So it could. I, I'm again, I'm kind of siding with you on this. Um, right. I don't have any experience to back it up, but that's just kind of what i thought. You know, mulling it over in my head.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's
0: just the the more data
1: we get and the more breedings we do, the more we sort of figure out the way it works. And I think you're, you're right. I mean, you, you start ruling things out and um, you know, it, there does not appear to be any kind of a super form. Um, so, you know, that, that, that narrows the focus a little bit as far as what we're dealing with here.
0: Awesome. So I want to kind of, uh, I also want to address another topic that. I feel like everybody kind of shies away from and they're, they're scared to talk about. And I'm just kind of curious, these guys are a rear thing. Is it because the delivery systems poor or the actual toxicity of, of the venom is just very, very mild. Um, I, I don't know. Do you, do you have any insight on that?
1: I, I personally have never been bitten or envenomated uh, from a Baron's racer. Uh, I'm generally fairly cautious that combined with the fact that they, they just really don't bite much. Um, mm-hmm. but that being said, um, I do know people that have been bitten and they've reported, uh, nothing more than mild localized swelling. That's usually gone within 24 hours. So I would gotcha. imagine that uh, it's the toxicity of the venom is just not something that's designed to be harmful to humans. Um, I can tell you that I was a lot more hyper aware of it, um, of the risks when I was importing them and they were still somewhat new to the pet trade. Um, in that the genus is Philodryas, and there are many um, species of snake in the Philodryas genus and in my the course of my research there are some that um, have caused human fatalities Um, right i forget the uh, i believe it's Philodryas olforsi i believe um and -hmm. there you know and it's a, a couple of documented fatalities and whether that was some kind of uh, you know allergic reaction to it, or whether it's really that potent, I don't know. But that being said, I was pretty pretty cautious and pretty aware of what the potential risks were. But you know, I do have uh, you know several informal accounts of other breeders and people that I know that have been bitten and envenomated, and um, all all of whom say that it's really just uh, mild localized swelling that's gone fairly quickly. So you know, that being yeah. said. I always advise with people that are going to keep rear fang stuff. Uh, you, you, you just don't know how you're going to react, uh, you know, like a bee sting, you know, a bee sting might not be a problem for me, but it might be for you. And uh, it's caution is just always warranted when you're dealing with a rear fang snake, particularly when you have larger ones like the Baron's racer or the Muserana. Um you right. know, you, you, you don't want to test it yourself to, have it latch on and chew on you for a, you know, for a half an hour, you know, it's, that would just be silly and reckless in my opinion. So um, I always take yeah. care no matter what I'm doing with my rear fang snakes. Cause you just don't know. Right. I think, yeah, I think
0: it, um, everybody is going to be, you know, you assume that people are going to be responsible um, with handling these animals and stuff like that. And I remember yeah. um, I had a, a prior show, Last year, I had Ryan Martinez on out of Florida, and he has kept and bred uh, Baron racers before. And I asked mm-hmm. him about it, um, and he said, he, and he also works with a lot of venomous reptiles, like the species that will kill you. Um, I know he's mm-hmm. worked with like Bushmasters and stuff like that. He's got some crazy stuff mm-hmm. over in Florida. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he said that um, he said that there again. He has he doesn't know like as far as the toxicity goes, he did tell me that uh, the delivery system was pretty poor on these guys. And kind of like you alluded Mm to, you know, if they, if they bite you, you know, it would, they would have to really get a good, you know, few seconds to clamp on and and sink the the real Mm -hmm. things into you. But he said, he, he said that they were so placid that they just, they just don't bite and, and he's worked with them. And, and you said that they're just very, very docile animals.
1: Yeah, and that's absolutely my experience as well. Um, you know, I've found their temperament-wise, they're, they're not too different than all of my dry mark on, in that if you're going to get bitten, it's generally going to be out of a feeding response. And I do have Baron's Racers that absolutely are going to charge out of their cage trying to bite me uh, when they think they're being fed. Um, but as soon as they know they're not being fed, which they figure out very quickly, uh, they're very placid snakes. So um, I haven't really uh, had, uh, you know, t- too much cause for concern
0: temperament wise. They're they're really
1: pretty gentle snakes.
0: And so feeding these guys is pretty easy then. Like they're not they're not picky eaters then. They've got a strong. Oh, not at
1: all. Um, you know, and, and even the little babies. You know, they're they're just little. They're little. You know, little strings when they're born, but they go right to pinkies uh, without an issue. Um, they, they, they absolutely enjoy rodents. Um, when they get uh, larger, I also uh, mix in chicks. Um, I have seen, um, adults, uh, with a propensity to get obese. Um, so I do try to feed uh, a predominantly chick diet with mixing in rodents kind of more supplementarily, uh, supplementarily. Oh. So, um, You know, uh, I I have seen obesity happen, um, but um, that's kind of been more in adults that I've acquired. They've kind of shown up obese and have had a hard time losing weight kind of a thing. Um, But uh, I I generally feed my adults. um, A chick is sort of a typical meal, and, you know, I might chase it with a mouse.
0: How often do you
1: feed them? Uh, you know, like pretty much everything else, I keep they've got fairly fast metabolisms, and you could feed them as much as uh, they'll eat as much as you'd want to feed them. But that being said, I generally feed somewhere between every five and seven days on them. Um, but they'll okay. they would literally eat every day if you let them. Um, and, and that that's a question that you know breeders get all the time. How often do you feed your snakes? And, and I think regardless of the species, it also depends on what you're feeding them and how, um, large the prey item is. So, um, I will, you know, I, I have a lot of, uh, you know, live pinky rodents uh, that I feed my baby snakes with. And, you know, some of my sub adults, you know, uh, I might give them one or two little pinkies every day or every other day. Um, you know, but it's, it's a very small meal for them, you know, so small right. and frequent meals is, uh, is, you know, is also acceptable. Whereas if you're feeding a larger mouse, that's going to fill it up, you know, that's uh, more of a once a week thing. So there's more than one way to, to kind of approach things. Um, I'm generally kind of a, uh, small, but more frequent meal kind of guy. Um, most of the snakes that I work with have faster metabolisms and they, they seem to grow well and be happy and healthy with that sort of a, with that sort of a diet. But, you know the indigos are the same. Once they get in adult length, um, then you start seeing that propensity to get obese if you overfeed, and that's where you can kind of start cutting it back to once a week.
0: Gotcha. So I kind of wanted to talk about uh, you know kind of merge into husbandry with these guys. What's mm-hmm. their what's their native habitat like? I mean, are they arboreal? Do they spend most of the time on the ground? Is it know higher elevation lower humid now when
1: i don't know too much i knew i'm really just from talking with david fabius about it years ago um they they do come from more of a more of a dry forest climate uh than you would think with their build and their you know the length of their nose people sort of think of them as a tropical snake and they're they're not really um they're they don't really have humidity requirements. You can keep them in a dry box, and they'll be absolutely fine, uh, or in a dry cage. Um, so humidity-wise, that's kind of it. But now as far as the arboreal thing, uh, again, with their with their body shape and their nose, you you kind of want to think of them as an arboreal snake. Uh, and they are. They They will climb, but they do spend a lot of time on the ground. And what I was talking with David about years ago is that You know uh, they're commonly found on the ground and in um, low shrubbery. So, um, you know whether you want to call that semi-arboreal, I guess would be fairly accurate. I um, I do keep mine in uh, cages that have arboreal um, you know uh, branches for them to climb on and so forth. And they use both. They're on the ground a lot. They're up in the branches a lot. Uh, You know they'll come out and bask in the mornings and um, and uh, and climb all around. So. Uh, I'd call them semi-arboreal. They're certainly not, you know, like a chondro or something that are just going to all want to always be in the trees.
0: Right. And I, I kind of look at them as more of like a, a draping species, kind of like an Amazon tree boa or a carpet python. Like they need multiple points of contact for them to feel secure. Is that, is that true? Yeah.
1: Yeah, right. I, they and yeah, they're long, you know. I mean, so it's it's they can't really just kind of sit on one little branch, you know. They I I have some of my adults are are over seven feet and they're long and wiry, so they kind of tangle themselves up in the branches.
0: Right. So how like what's a? I mean, obviously, like I won't I won't bother with the with the babies. You know, you keep them in a six quart tub. You can put them in a rack. But like mm-hmm. when these things start to get bigger. Like, what's the size cage that you would recommend for an adult? And what are the temp requirements? Like, what would you recognize rec- recommend for temps?
1: You know, I, I've done it both ways. Um, when I was importing them years ago, I kept them in a rack um, like you would a king snake or a corn snake, and they thrived, and they were fine. Uh, temperature, spectrum, uh, you know, I – kept them like you would any other colubrid. I I kept them, you know, uh, the warm spot in the, in the low to mid eighties and the, in the cool spot, ambient room temperature, you know, 78 degrees or whatever it is. And and they thrived. Um, So when I kind of got back into them and I started gathering all these blues back up, I thought these are just absolutely too beautiful for a rack. And I, and I, so I wanted some uh, more display type caging, And so I have them in um, three foot by two foot by two foot arboreal cages, uh, upright cages. And I take two of those and I stack them on top of each other. And I cut a hole and put a PVC pass-through pipe uh, in the middle of them so they can get up and down. So the the net effect is it ends up being six feet tall and two feet wide and two feet deep. Um, And I'll keep pairs like that.
0: And do you, uh, So you kind of uh, cohabitate them then?
1: I do. Um, and you know, it's interesting because they, they, they are, uh, it's probably overstating it to say that they're social animals, uh, but they, they absolutely enjoy each other's company. They, they're in and around each other all the time. They don't avoid each other at all. And that's another topic we can get into when we start talking about the Spolodes, but um but, uh, yeah, they're, they're often clumped together and enjoy each other's company. And I, I like the cohabitating um, when you're dealing with a species that maybe is not as clockwork with uh, breeding cycles as others may be because um, they just sort of breed when they want. And I've – this is kind of segueing into the – I'm assuming we'll eventually talk about breeding, but uh, they just yep. sort of breed when they want, and they'll, they'll breed pretty steadily from – you know, uh, late fall all the way through spring and just are just kind of always doing it. And it's always, they, um, it, but cohabitating is kind of a, a, a good way to learn uh, a newer species where there hasn't been that much documented on them as far as breeding goes um, and just let them do their thing. And, and they, they just breed all the time. But you, you get to learn kind of, you know, that they, they're not necessarily spring breeders uh, you know, like other colubrids would be, they'll breed in the late fall and they'll breed in the winter and they'll breed all spring too. So the mm-hmm. only real time that is my habitation ex- gets a little dicey is during feeding. And that's where I, I, I have a, a cap that I put on the PVC and I separate them because they'll absolutely fight over the same prey item and they'll get really aggressive about it too. Right.
0: I, I mean, I was going to ask you, like, if I assume there was no bermation needed for these guys, but I didn't know for sure. So you kind of touched on that. You know, people, people have done it, uh, with success.
1: Oh, um, I, I don't specifically, uh, do that. Um, I, I mean, I, I do let the ambient temperatures in my snake room go down a bit in the winter, but, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not like I'm cooling them down into the fifties like you would a corn snake. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they, when the light cycle starts getting less, you know, just with the windows in the snake room and, you know, I let the temps drop, you know, five or 10 degrees more than normal. Um, They just start breeding and they just keep it going uh, for several months.
0: So what, what kind of basking spot do you think these guys should have?
1: Uh, You know, you you know, again, it really depends because I've, I've kept them successfully and bred them successfully without a basking spot. I, you know, I, I, I used to breed them just in racks with, you know, uh, the way you would keep anything else. But, uh, but that being said, uh, the way I have it set up now is that I have a heat light on the top half of my two cage unit um, and nothing on the bottom. And I have branches that are kind of right underneath the basking spot there. And they will sit there and let themselves get pretty hot. I mean, it can get 88, 90 degrees, um, you know, in the, the, the uh, underneath the basking spot there and they'll, they'll use it. So that's kind of the other thing of just kind of offering different choices and then watching what they do and how they choose to use those options and you know really helps you fine tune your husbandry. you know if I did that with an indigo, I would see that it would ignore the the lights pretty completely except for maybe right after a meal or right you know in the early morning and so you know it, it teaches you about what the snakes
0: preferences are yeah. That's- See that's that's really interesting. I you know these guys have always been uh, a fascination for me because I've always wanted to work with them and and everything I hear about them just makes me want to work with them more. So that's really cool. Um, I what what size clutch do these guys have? Long gestation, pretty typical gestation for colubrid. What you, what has been your experience? Uh,
1: it's so uh, the the breeders that I've talked to and myself, we generally. Um, incubate eggs at uh, more like room temperature instead of doing the 82, 83 degree uh, incubation. We're generally more like 77, 78, uh, you know, in that area. And when you're, when you're incubating them at that, they seem to go about 90 days. Okay. Uh, You know, so a little longer than your typical colubrid, you know, 60 day uh, clutch. Um, I I would imagine that you would get closer to 60 days if you're incubating in more like, you know, 82, 83 degrees. Um, But either way, uh, they come out happy and healthy uh, with the way that I've been doing it. Um, So as far as clutch size goes, um, I actually have a friend of mine who just got a clutch of 29 eggs. Uh, I think that's the largest I've ever heard of. (laughs) You know, my clutches tend to be, somewhere in the 15 to 20 area, you know, 12 to 18 areas, something like that. Um, but, you know, they, they, they can be pretty prolific breeders uh, given the opportunity. And if they're, you know, happy and healthy, um, they can produce some, they can produce some, uh, some high, uh, high volume clutches
0: for you. Do these guys double clutch at all?
1: I have not ever double clutched them. I'm not sure if I've heard of someone double clutching them. Uh, maybe I have, it's certainly not the norm.
0: Okay. Wow, 29 eggs. It, well, th- so that that begs the question: Are are these guys hard to start on pinkies? Or do you have to scent them and kind of switch them over, like, or do they pretty much go from the get-go?
1: So just to kind of give it in terms of ratios, uh, out of a clutch of 20 eggs, maybe I have two that maybe I need to scent once or twice. Uh, the the, okay. the remainder just vigorously attack pinkies.
0: They're, they're very, they're very good
1: feeders right out of the egg Yeah. Yeah. Which is nice because, you know, the Rhino rats and other similar things, you know, are a lot more work. These are, these are, I'm telling you, there's, there's not much about barons racers that's too complicated. They're, you know, they're, they're really hardy, easy to take care of, easy to breed, easy to get babies started. Um, They're, you know, I, I, I'm surprised they're not more popular than they are.
0: I was, I was just thinking, why do you think not more, there aren't more people working with them? I'm
1: speculating here, but I would assume two things. First off, the rear fang thing can put people off, um, which, you know, understandably so. If people don't want to be involved with that, that's fine. Uh, and part two of that is I think just when people see them, they sort of assume that they're, you know, uh, flighty uh, snakes with nasty temperaments. Um, you know that are hard to take care of, and they're just not. You know they're they're they can definitely whip around on you, but they they you know they calm down very quickly. They really don't bite defensively very often, um, and they're just super easy to take care of. So yeah, I, I'm I'm baffled by it myself. I, I think they should be more popular than they are.
0: Yeah, I was kind of like
1: I don't remember who I was talking.
0: I think it was Ryan. I was talking to him. Kind of comparing them to rhino rats, which obviously are mm-hmm. a completely different species from a different place, but mm-hmm. it's like you think you think of all the complications you have with rhinos, and you don't really have those complications with par- Paranite. They're just they're really know, they're so really rock solid. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's as
1: easy as taking care of a corn snake, honestly.
0: So, um, ballparking like what is the Um, what is the supply of color phases? Like, is there one phase that's more rare than the other phase? And what are the prices that correspond, like ballparking prices, that correspond with those phases?
1: So I do think that the public exposure and the popularity is rising. Um, And I think that corresponds to a a rise in prices uh, based on the demand. Um, The most commonly seen color variation is clearly the greens uh, by quite a bit um, I haven't really sold many greens and really tested that market much, but I think it's somewhere in the two hundred fifty dollar each area um, you know ten years ago it was you know more like one fifty and I think it's, I think it's kind of been that you can kind of see one fifty here and there but i think um, I think the popularity's going up quite a bit. And, um, you know, uh, and the price is reacting to that. Um, the blues, believe it or not, are probably next in how common they are, but not nearly as common as the greens. Greens are by far and away the, the most common. And I think the blues are kind of becoming more uh, more prevalent in the pet trade, really, because breeders like myself, a couple other guys, are starting to focus on it. It used to be you just get, you know – one or two blue snakes popping up out of green clutches here and there. And they're just sort of around, but, uh, people are, um, specifically breeding with the intention of producing blues now. And so you're starting to see that more. Um, and, uh, with that, the popularity has gone up quite a bit because the blues are just absolutely striking animals. So, um, I haven't had a problem selling those for more like in the $600 each area. Um, They're very popular overseas, uh, as well. Um, so those sell very, uh, very well and reasonably. So, I mean, it's not often you see a blue snake and they're just super cool. Uh, you know, and there's really also a lot of variation within the blue spectrum. I have snakes that are sort of more of a steely blue and others that are, uh, just a, a bright powder sky blue and others that are more of a turquoise blue, um, so you, you get all kinds of ends of the spectrum. Um, but with that, I think the one that's probably the least common are the browns. And generally speaking, brown snakes are not as in high demand as, uh, you know, uh, the, the flashier colors. But uh, I think the browns are really underrated uh, because they've got this sort of, you know, chocolatey brown base color, and then they've got this deep, dark black stripe that models through the top part of them and they're really underrated and you really hardly ever see them. I, I had to import some from Europe cause I couldn't find any in the U S so um, they're pretty neat too. Um, I don't know that I've even really seen anyone selling them in the U S um, so as far as pricing goes, I don't know where that's going to end up, probably somewhere between a green and a blue. I think the demand will probably be lower on them because they are Brown um, but the lack of supply uh i mean there's really nobody that's producing them consistently that i know of there may be a few here and there but they're really hard to find so um that's definitely a color variation that i think is, pr- is pretty neat and people should kind of uh you know take a
0: look at because they're pretty cool oh yeah like dude i i didn't even know they came in in brown until you were messaging me like a couple weeks ago or a yeah. month ago, I don't remember when it was, and you told me yeah, about most, that. Yeah, most like, people oh, don't. They come in a brown color, and then you. Yeah, said and, it, and I'll don't. be honest with you. You know, I, I'm a big fan of all, a, a lot of the Aussie snakes, uh, especially like uh-huh. Ancheria and stuff like that, and so I right. do like brown snakes. But I wasn't super excited with, about seeing them when you told me they came in brown. Then you, I was like, ah, for kicks, I'd like to see a picture of one. And you sent me a picture, yeah. and it was just like you said, like really mm-hmm. underrated. Like you hear brown yeah. snakes, you don't think that much. But when I saw a picture, right. I was like, okay, that's not really a brown snake to me. That, that there's something about it that makes it very, very unique. So what do you I, see? What do you see him in person? Are, oh, well, maybe we could set something up and make that happen. <laughs> I, I <would> love, <laughs> yeah, well, I sounds good. Get, I, I would love to get some of your uh, some of your animals on camera and 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 you know see see you interact with them. That would be awesome. Yeah, for
1: sure. Well, unfortunately, I'm not coming to uh, up your way this year for the Sacramento show, but uh, um, maybe next year. And if not, certainly, you know, know, let me know next time you're down in L.A.
0: Are you down in L.A.? I thought you were in San Jose for some reason.
1: No, no, I'm in L.A.
0: Okay, so you're a little bit farther south then. Awesome. Well, I mean, I, I do go down there on occasion, so I might I might hit you up one of these days. But uh, yeah, well, that's really cool. I, I'm 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 curious. Uh, I had just have one more question about the Barons racers before we move on to the Tiger Rats. Um, mm-hmm. How what is so? We were talk, kind of talking about supply. Like, do you how many breeders? I mean, I know it's an educated guess, but how many breeders do you think are actually producing these guys um, here in the U.S.? Honestly, they're, they're really they're really
1: are there really are not that many that I've come across.
0: There's really only a
1: handful. Um, You know, I I would expect things to change in the next, uh, you know, 10 years because, like I said, they are pretty prolific breeders, and there are a lot of baby snakes going out into the pet trade uh, right now. Um, But uh, there there really aren't that many. You know, you can find the greens uh, around, but you have to search to find the blues, and you have to really search to find
0: the, the browns. Hmm. You know, I, I mean, I, don't, I know you're selling babies and you're producing them, but I don't see people posting very many pictures of them. So I, I just wasn't sure, you know, who all was working with them and who all, let alone breeding them.
1: Well, and there, there there, there, aren't really that many, and that was really part of my decision. You know, I generally choose breeding projects that I am into just, you know, for, from what I like and the species I like working with. and that are fun to take care of and all that, but there is a, there is a business aspect to it, you know, and if my intention is to, you know, breed and sell babies, uh, you know, I do think about what the potential market is and, and and all that sort of thing. And so breeding the blue barons races was deliberate. Um, I felt like there were, it was in kind of an untapped market where the supply is very low. And I thought with uh, pictures and exposure and some promotion on social media and online that, the demand could be uh, could be very high. Uh, so, you know, it, it wasn't by accident that I chose to kind of get back into Baron's Racers and specifically focus on blue ones because there really aren't that many out there. They're dynamite-looking snakes. They're super cool and easy to take care of. And I feel like their popularity uh, should be more, and I feel like the demand uh, would, is high and would be really high as people learn about them.
0: So how large of a colony do you have, excluding babies? Uh,
1: So right now I have 2.4 blues um, with a couple that I'm raising up in addition to that. And I also have a trio of browns. I actually don't have any greens that I'm working with right now.
0: Oh, gotcha. Okay. Is that because you're just kind of not all that interested in working with the greens or you just haven't really. Well, listen to you, you, you yet. got to, you got to draw the line
1: somewhere. You know, which <laughs> yeah, is yeah, kind of my thought. thought, you know, it's a, if I, if I need a breeding group of every single color, uh, you know, I'm going to be running out of space quickly, you know, but uh, my, <laughs> it's not that I dislike the greens at all. It's, it's more just that they're more common and more typical. And I tend to want to stray away from that. Uh, and focus gotcha. on things that are not really out there. So, which led me towards the, uh, the blues and the browns. So, uh, the greens are great. The greens are fabulous, you know? Um, awesome. but, uh, you know, I, I, I had some, uh, but I ended up, uh, selling them off. I, you got to draw the line somewhere. You can't have everything you
0: want. No. I, yeah, I know. I trust me. I, I totally get that. So let's, let's talk about the Spallotes. I mean, what kind of brought sure. you to working with, uh, with this species? Well, uh, I would imagine I was like
1: a lot of people, um, that would just sort of drool off of the odd photo you would find here and there on the internet. And, um, gosh, it was a, it was a number of years ago. It's gotta be, uh, six or seven years ago, maybe, maybe five or six. Anyway, um, I didn't have any of them. I'd never kept any of them. I'd never even kept, you know, the, um, the South American imports, um, but I was always sort of fascinated with him to some degree. Uh, anyway, a gentleman approached me and, uh, said that he had a couple of the Mexican ones and having seen a couple of photos here and there online, I, I, uh, I jumped at the opportunity to pick them up and, uh, they were adults and they, uh, they ended up being both females. And so I tracked down, uh, my friend, John Anderman, who's probably, you know, uh, one of the most, if not the most, uh, ex, uh, experienced with Spilodes, uh in the country. Uh, he's down in San Diego, not far from me. And so I tracked him down and spoke with him quite a bit and um, ended up giving him my two females on a breeding loan with his male that he had. And um, he was able to get uh, a clutch out of him, um, which was really pretty uh, fortunate because my females ended up being fairly old. Um, and um, have since uh, passed away uh, but we did get one, the, the one clutch and so the majority of the Mexican tiger rat snakes that you see around on the internet are animals that came out of that breeding um, so we, we kept back uh, you know uh, snakes of, uh, for, my, for myself um, and John kept some for himself and he sent a couple to some friends and those snakes have since been raised up and, um, and have bred uh, now in the second generation. So uh, everything that you're seeing, to my knowledge, and there, I, I absolutely could be wrong on this and be, have missed something, but has kind of come out of that, uh, that, uh, that breeding that John was able to do with our females. So uh, we are currently, you know, trying to get our adults to breed ourselves. So um, I'm absolutely happy to chat about everything that I know, but that being said, it's obviously still a work in progress because we've not yet successfully gotten eggs out of them. Um, So we're, we're hopeful that 2019 will be our year. This was 2018 was really the first year that I thought they were big enough for it to be possible. And unfortunately we did not get eggs. Um, So we're going to tweak a few things and um, you know, try some different husbandry ideas and uh, see what we can do for this upcoming year. But they're they're absolutely um striking animals and uh a whole world different than the
0: South American imports that you can find. Yeah, I was going to say I don't ever see them coming in. Why do you think that is? Well,
1: you you can't legally export out of Mexico without uh oh, without that's true. Yeah. pretty pretty stringent permits. So um you know, my understanding, and again, I'm absolutely not an authority on this. My understanding is that the Mexicanus subspecies can range down into Central America, um, you know, but the, and those countries are, are closed to exportation as well uh, of wild-caught animals. Um, but that being said, uh, they, you know, they've, they closed a lot more recently than, than Mexico did. So, um, you know, you can get Mexicanas from Central America as well but generally speaking from photos I've seen and from my understanding of the way it all works, the further North you go in the Mexicanus range, uh, the more colorful you can tend to get. And so the really bright colorful ones that that we have uh, and that you, you may have seen around on the internet are from Tamaulipas, Mexico, which is kind of the Northern end of their range on the kind of the Northeast area of Mexico.
0: What's a, what's a, like is that like Yucatan Peninsula, or is it like up further, further north, further north than that? Further they, north, I mean, okay. they
1: they do range in the Yucatan, and in fact, uh, many years ago, I was down there uh, vacationing, and I found a dead one in the road that was really pretty in orange. Uh, but the ones that you're oh, wow. referring to are from Tamalipas, which is further up the east coast. It's not quite to not quite gotcha. to the southern tip of Texas, but in, in that vicinity.
0: Okay, so do they do they? Re- so their range get, it goes from like a fairly dry climate to a more humid climate then
1: yeah Is they're, they're pretty they, they, they can be pretty um, you know uh, variable in the kind of habitat they prefer because they'll, they'll go from Central America you know all the way up through Mexico, and you know Mexico's a pretty oh. big country uh, they, they, they range through all that yeah so, um, you know they, they generally prefer sort of the subtropical climate. You know they're not definitely not a desert species, Um, but uh, you know they can be anywhere from you know uh, wet rainforest to um, kind of a a, you know a drier a drier forest.
0: With them being as slender as they are, it's pretty easy to underestimate how large they get. What's the max size on that you have seen them attain?
1: uh my personal animals are in the seven to eight foot range um you know you hear stories about them getting you know nine ten feet long uh i haven't seen a snake like that with my own two eyes but i know they exist so um they can get pretty large but the specific group that i have or you know tend to settle in that sort of seven foot area
0: gotcha and I would imagine, like you were explaining with the the and I, that they're pretty variable on their phenotype, too, you know, with different. Yeah, I mean, you know, people brightness. don't really
1: know because, because they haven't, uh, you know, there, there hasn't been a whole lot of breeding from different localities. You know, what we do know is that the Tamaulipus locality, which, you know, kind of all this kind of sprang out of, uh, is the most colorful. Uh, but there are animals from further south in Mexico. In fact, we have uh, some breeding groups of that as well from more like Veracruz and and uh, you know areas further south where they're not quite as colorful uh, overall. But um, I don't think anyone has bred you know the the southern Mexicanas to the really colorful northern ones and kind of tested out to see you know what the phenotypes are going to look like when you, once you start kind of uh, playing around with the different, uh, localities. So, um, you know, uh, that, are that so,
0: remains to be seen. Are folks mixing the localities because the genetics pool is not um, all that vast with,
1: uh, I, I, you know, our, our, and the answer is not yet, but I think it's probably wise. Um, you know, the, yeah. the, the Tomolipus animals really kind of, uh, all stem out of the same group of breeders, you know? And so right. while it's certainly tempting to be, you know, breeding for that really bright yellow Tomalipas color and the bright orange uh, in the end, it's, uh, it, it, uh, I could see it getting to a point where it could be a problem. Um, so I think mixing the localities is not a bad idea uh, for genetic strength. Um, as long as you're obviously still sticking within the Mexicana subspecies and not, I, you know, I wouldn't advocate crossing it to a South American Pilatus or anything. Right. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No. Um, yeah. I guess it's just not, there doesn't seem to be too many people working with them. Kind of like you were saying, like, I've heard of a few people, like I, I talked to Dan Maleri sometimes and he's bred them, but mm-hmm. it, even him, he he said that the success he's had with them has been very like inconsistent, you know, like you're not, you're not getting large clutches. It's like, you know, you get a clutch and then like, half or the majority goes bad and you only get a couple to hatch or yeah i I don't know well
1: and i can tell you that i mean really you know the i'm i'm absolutely still learning you know and hopefully i can figure it out i can tell you that john uh you know anderman he's he's had more success than anyone i know and he's he's been able to double clutch some of his spelotes uh some of his mexicanas and they're they're pretty prolifically breeding for him so uh you know i'm i'm hoping to in. have that kind of success on my own yeah
0: so but, what is he he do uh, but i think you're right is i mean people just... like go ahead uh,
1: well you know most people who who've had success with belodies will tell you it has something to do with uh not necessarily temperature cycles but more moisture cycles that you want to be able to replicate a a dry season and a, and a rainy season so um uh, i i it's it's no secret what I what I'm attempting to do, and, and that is, my, or what we're going to try to focus on more this year is really dry them out from now through, uh, you know, Decemberish, and then once you start kind of you know getting some of the rainy winter weather here, um, I'll start I'll bring the temperature up a few degrees and start misting them every day heavily, and um, and that's. Kind of what uh, John advised me to do, and hopefully I'll have some success with that. You know, and you talk to other Spolodies breeders, it's a it's a similar deal. Uh, that would also include people that I've heard of breeding the um, the South American ones. They'll tell me some of the same stuff that uh, you know you need a wet season and a dry season. So you know, it's 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 definitely in contrast to the Barons racers. Uh, the Spolodies seem to be more sensitive to you know having proper breeding cycles in order to have success with them and. Again, it's a mystery I'm trying to solve myself. So uh, hopefully we'll have success in 2019.
0: So are you saying that to start cooling them now and make sure it's like pretty dry and then start bumping the temps up around December or January when the rains come and obviously start creating a little bit more of a humid cage environment?
1: Exactly. But I think as far as the temperature swing, it doesn't need to be too much, Uh, you know, really just a few degrees um, you know, uh, still keep them, you know, on the warm side of root temp. Right. Maybe turn off the basking light uh, and dry them out. And um, and then, uh, you know, click it all back on and give them heavy moisture, uh, you know, sometime in the uh, the beginning of winter. Um, that's anyway what, what I'm trying this year. So we'll see how that goes.
0: Are you food cycling as well? Not really.
1: I mean, I think uh, they're absolute savages, you know. Uh, It doesn't matter (laughs) if their light's on or not, or if they're at 80 degrees or, or 85 degrees, they're just going to, they're, they're going to eat whatever I throw in front of them. So not really when they're hungry, I feed them, which is, well, I shouldn't say that because then I'd be feeding them all the time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard from people that they're kind of one of those species you, they're very alert. They watch you, um, they're intelligent, uh, they're thinking, but you kind of got to be careful with them because you could, you know, they're agile, they're long, slender snakes, and they could turn around on you pretty quick. So you found them my, to be pretty Hannibal? The,
1: the animals that we have are not very nippy. Um, okay. They go through their threat display, and they'll, they'll puff up their throats. and um, I found the majority of the time, if they're going to strike at me, it's, it's often with an open mouth that they just don't close. They hit me with an open mouth. Um, and even then that's, that doesn't happen that frequently. So, so, you know, I, I'm absolutely not generalizing to say that these are all Spelotes, because I know there are a lot of people that have some pretty, um, mean tempered Spelotes, but, uh, our, our, ours are really not that, um, prone to biting and drawing blood sort of a thing. Um, but you know, you want to talk about their personality. They're, it, it, it's a different kind of snake, and you don't really get it until you work with them. But the way that they watch you—I mean, you know—the Barons Racers watch you, and my Indigos will watch you. And there's, you know, a level of intelligence and all these. But the Spilotes are, are, are another level. They're—they—they're they, they're very curious, and they uh, when you open their cage, and, and, and they—they'll come and check you out and see what you're up to and what you're about. Um, there's absolutely you know, uh, uh, personality behaviors that they'll have. You know, you'll take them out and they they bob their head in a way that I haven't really seen other snakes do. They flick their tongue uh, in kind of a unique way that you don't see other snakes do. And they just sort of have this uh, awareness and and curiosity about them that's really pretty cool. Um, You know, uh, that in addition to that, you know, I talked about cohabitating my uh, Baron's racers. I do the same with my Spilotes. Um, one of the things that you hear, uh, or that I've heard from others, uh, it's kind of hokey and it kind of sounds weird, but after keeping them, it makes sense that if you want to have success breeding, the snakes, the male and the female should know each other first, (laughs) you know, and it's interesting. It's really not a reptilian way of thinking, um, because that's not really not what people do. Um, but uh, it's, it's absolutely, they're, they're, when you cohabitate them, you see it. Because there are times of the year when the male and the female don't want anything to do with each other. And there are other times when they specifically seek each other out, not necessarily to breed, mind you. You know, that they'll specifically go to where the other one is, and not even necessarily that it's an optimal hiding spot. They, they seem to want to hang out together at times. And there are other times when they want to be absolutely away from each other and allowing them the latitude to be able to do that is, uh, is educational for me to kind of, so I can kind of see the way they work, but it's, it, it's a hard thing to explain. It sounds like I'm kind of a kooky kind of a, a breeder with all these weird notions that don't make sense, but uh, th- there is a social element to them that I've noticed that I've not seen in any other snakes. And it's really, cool to observe and you know i think to some degree it may play into breeding success um you know that the male and the female just kind of need to be comfortable with each other when i first put them in together and started co-having they they definitely needed a couple of months to kind of get cool with each other completely they would kind of ignore each other opposite sides of the cage and uh and then they just started hanging out together you know so it's a it's it's a definitely a neat thing to watch they're it's hard to explain, um, w- without actually keeping them, but, uh, there, there's, there's something to cohabitating Spolodes, I believe.
0: Caves and sides and all that stuff that you do your, your parents exactly. racers.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: Gotcha. So like, okay. So they, you said there's kind of been sporadic success in breeding then. Mm-hmm. um, Feeding them, you said they're pretty voracious. Uh, do you feel like they are as babies as well? And like, are are they throwing large clutches? This, uh, what was his name again? I can't remember. Uh,
1: John Anderman, uh,
0: your friend John Anderman. So is is John getting large clutch, clutches? For, like, what's an average clutch that he gets from these guys?
1: Uh, it's not as large as the Baron's racers,
0: but I think it's. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember. I think
1: it's somewhere in that eight to twelve area. Um, gotcha something like that. I could be wrong on that, but it's somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, as far as the babies go, you know, they're, they're more difficult than Baron's racers to get started, but certainly not a huge problem. Um, they'll often go towards pinkies. Um, you at times need to tease feed them to get them started. Um, and you know, sometimes scenting with, uh, uh, you know, with, well, really various prey items can be helpful, uh, as well. Um, I don't know that, that, uh, it's really a, a ton of work to, to get them started, but they're certainly not, not, uh, super, super straight to rodent kind of thing like their barons racers are. Right. So are
0: these guys feeding on, uh, like lizards and stuff like that in the wild, like pretty much anything they can overpower? I would say so. Yeah, I mean they'll they'll eat birds.
1: And the, the idea is with really kind of arboreal colubrids, you think they eat a lot of birds, and I'm sure they do. I'm right. sure they eat a lot of lizards as well. Um, but mine are certainly happy to take rodents.
0: Huh. And I didn't think to ask you this about the barons racers, but uh, what's the sexual maturity on both of those species? Oh, uh, they they'll both
1: grow very very quickly,
0: uh, and they can be mature inside of two years are you serious Instead of two years
1: Uh for a female? Yep. Sure. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you've, obviously it's all about, you know, husbandry and keeping it the right temperature and the proper feeding regimen. But uh, yeah, they, they grow very quickly. You can have a hatchling up to six feet, you know, in the space of two years without an issue.
0: Wow. So pretty much the, the 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 tub sizes for these guys is super temporary. They all grow pretty quick.
1: Right. Yep. Yep. I mean, you're starting them in shoebox racks, and you know, within uh, you know, you can within two years you've got them in their adult caging. Yeah. And, the, and I usually have a step in the middle with uh, some kind of uh sub adult you know space uh for them, but um, yeah, they're. <laughs> They can grow pretty quickly. It's obviously without aggressively you feed them, and you don't want to overfeed them, kind of a thing. But uh, if you keep the temperatures on the, you know, on the on the slight warm side to keep their metabolism going, and you feed them small and frequent meals, they'll they'll
0: really grow like
1: weeds. And that's both the spleenies so and the baronite.
0: Yeah. So you're you're keeping their their basking spots and the way you operate with like temperatures and stuff is pretty much the same for both. It sounds like. Yep.
1: I'm keeping them the same way. Huh. And, and that's, that's deliberate too. You know, I, I, in choosing, and, and again, my, my base of everything is dry mark on, um, but you know, I, I, I deliberately choose things that are going to be successful in my snake room. Um, right. You know, I, 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 I keep the ambient pinned at 78, 80 degrees at all times. And with my dry mark on, I just don't put any heat on them because they prefer it cooler. So I keep them at that sort of ambient. And then, you know, the, the Spilotes and the, the, uh, the barons racers, you know, they would be, again, I think they would be perfectly happy without heat, but I do find that they utilize it when I provide it. So, um, so I do, I provide them with the heat. I provide them plenty of opportunity to get away from the heat and, uh, let them thermoregulate the way they want. And, um, you know, they, they do well in, in that sort of a setup. So, um, that's deliberate, you know. I don't want to have, you know, ten different breeding projects that all have ten different husbandry, uh, you know, procedures. So um, it's a way for me to kind of, you know, selectively choose the products projects that I want to do that I'm into, but that also just sort of fit and make sense in what kind of husbandry that uh, I'm able to provide.
0: Right. Wow, that's. That's interesting. Gosh, I had no idea, man. I thought that it was like three to four years. Um, that, a yeah, lot of that's people... that's kind of what
1: it is with the indigos. That, that these they they grow so quickly. Uh, indigos will take uh, will also grow quickly, but you generally want to be three four years on them. Yeah, they they really grow. I, I'm not sure that I've really seen any snakes grow as fast as some of these guys do.
0: Wow. So here here's the question: which of those two species, do you prefer more, and why? Yeah, <laughs> that's a
1: <laughs> uh, that's a tough one. You know, that's one of those questions you just can't ask. You know, um, <laughs> but <I'll laughs> do your best well, to answer to, it. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I think um, behaviorally, uh, you know, and personality-wise, I, I really love the Spelotes. They're just so cool, um, and uh, you know, everything I described about their their little behaviors and their head bobbing and the way they watch you and all that is just absolutely intriguing to me. Um, I really, really dig them. I'm sure that my enthusiasm for them will get yeah, even more ramped up once I get babies out of them. Um, and that'll be just be a lot of fun. Um, you know, what I, as far as the Barons racers go, you know, it's hard to get away from just the colors, you know, being polymorphic sure. like they are and having the, you know, having some browns and some greens and some blues and, and then the, the range of different shades of blue that you can have. And uh, you know, they're a lot of fun as well. So I, I love them both for different reasons. Um, right. You know, and it's neat to be able to get a clutch of 20 barons racers all pipping out and, and, you know, getting a little worms feeding. And it's, uh, it's just, it's just a super cool project to work with. So I really love them both. That's, you know, I don't know that you expected me to really pick sides on that one, did you?
0: <laughs> I, I had that. You can't. You can't hate for asking. But I didn't oh, expect to no. be a I, solid I answer. No, I. I yeah. Expected it to be a vague answer. Right. But um, you know, that's, it's funny because when I pick shows to bring, like guests to bring people on, sometimes it's because I've had people reach out to me and say, "Hey, I want you to to bring on, you know, so and so or whatever," and usually. Mm-hmm it's Corralis related because we are, you know, I do focus with tree bolas, And so the majority of my right. listeners are, are listeners. But I've, uh, this year I've really made an effort to try and bring on guests that are not, um, not Corralis keepers. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those ones where it's like, okay, these are two species. I personally have really, really been fascinated with for a long time. And I want to learn about, so, you know, there, there yeah, there, there's, I, I brought you on by design because it, it definitely my piques my interest, and I'm, hope I know that we have some listeners that are really, really big into some of the more, uh, I guess, niche or obscure, colubrid species, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I lived in South America for a couple of years, so it, it to me, it, mm-hmm. it's just, I've, I love pretty much everything that, you know, Central and South America. I just think that stuff's fascinating. So no, I'm, I'm the same
1: way. I go ahead.
0: I was going to say, when you mentioned the roadkill, um, my uh-huh. first, the first snake I saw in the Amazon was about a seven foot red tail boa that was roadkill. And it was so cool. Beautiful. Uh-huh. Beautiful. Like had the brightest red tail that I have seen.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I'm similar to you in that for whatever reason that I cannot explain, I don't feel much of a an allure towards the Asian tropical species. Um, I've traveled to some of those areas, but, you know, uh, whether it's field herping or whether it's just, um, you know, wanting to work with species that come from that part of the country or the, the world, the, the Asian stuff has never really appealed to me nearly as much as the Latin American stuff. I, I really dig uh, Latin American Colubrids, you know, the Musarana, the Cribos, um, you know, and obviously the Spilotes and the Barons racers. Uh for whatever reason, just I'm way into the Latin American stuff. Um I don't not sure that I can explain it. Um, yeah. I uh you know, I, I love field herping down in those areas and Costa Rica and Peru and whatever else and I c I can't explain it. That's just uh
0: just what does it for me. Yeah, I mean you, you like what you like and you know, I do love, you know, some of the uh the Ridley the cave dwelling racers and and some of the believers mm-hmm. species from uh from that area, but like for the most sure. part e- and even outside of of uh Colubris, even with the boas and stuff like that, I mean I just really, really like the stuff that's the Latin American stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, yep. not so much the domestic stuff, you know. Yeah, there's some that are beautiful but they've never really Grabs my attention as much as the stuff down south. Yeah,
1: well, you know, that's that's why I appreciate you bringing me on. You know, there's there, there's a lot of cool stuff out there, and a lot of it is kind of that niche kind of thing. Um, but uh, you know, that being said, some of the niche stuff is is only niche because people don't know about it. So bringing exposure to that
0: is a is a fun thing to do. So I appreciate what you do. Yeah, that is the name of the game, and I'm really glad that you were able to come on and and chat with it, you know, it's a, it's still a work night. I know. So I do, uh, I do appreciate, you know, taking some time to do that. I know, it's, you know, for me, it's like, I know some of these podcasts, they, they go like every week and if I'm like, I, I, I think that's awesome. I just don't know how I could do it. I've got family and stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, oh, yeah. You know, you got to plan ahead and, and everything. But, uh, so you're, you are expecting Barron's racers in two weeks and your Mexican mm-hmm. uh sploties, you're not expecting this year, you're thinking they'll go the following year. That's the hope, yep. Okay. That's right. And and as far as I know, um, and I'm just guessing here, but the spilotes are I don't know if investments the right word, but they are um they they require a little bit more of a financial commitment mm-hmm. than the Barron's racers. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Yeah.
1: and it's it's you know with these, it's it's an interesting space to be because you know the for many decades the bulk of what's been available in the pet trade have been these imports that come out of South America that are that are mean and full of parasites and you know difficult to get to breed and so you know they're you know when I was growing up they were hundred dollar snakes you know. Um, and so when you see, you know, uh, and obviously the, these Tamaulipas Mexican tiger rats are on another level color wise, but you know, I've bumped into people that will say, you know, Hey, that tiger rat is $2,000. Are you kidding me? That's a hundred dollar snake. You guys are ridiculous. You know, but it's, 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 it's an interesting thing because it, it, Exactly. If you know what it is, you know how special the Mexicans are, and you know particularly how colorful those Pamelipans can be, um, it's absolutely not the same animal as those South American imports. And uh, it's a completely different market when you look at it from a business perspective. So um, it's people who know what they are and appreciate the lack of supply out there and how beautiful they are and how cool they are they, they absolutely understand the high price tag. Um, but you know, there's still a a section of people that just don't get it because they don't really know what they're looking at there and how special of an animal it is. Right. And so,
0: yeah, I mean, if you take, if you were to take the, I guess the species, you know, um, Central American ones that are uh, the non-Mexican ones and then mm. compare them to the Mexican subspecies. To me, it's like night and day. Like, I mean, yeah. just the and that's, on and that's them what you're are, paying for. You know, it's like the other ones look like you just them through mud. <laughs> I don't think that's the right way to oh, yeah. describe it, but I mean, really it looks yeah. like they've been laying in a bunch of mud and that's, Yeah. And, you know, you know,
1: and of course you can get some pretty neat looking South American ones. And there, there are people this last couple of years that have had some success breeding those and all of that, but you know, you're absolutely right. It's the, you know, the, the Mexican ones are a whole nother, it's a whole nother can of worms. You know, it's, uh, it's, you know, not even on, on the same tier, uh, you know, as far as coloration and just a striking animal. So, um, you know, I don't know what the price on them will be like 10 years from now. And hopefully people will start having some breeding success with them and kind of increase the supply in the U S but for now, uh, you know, hardly anyone has them. Uh, there are even fewer people producing them and the demand is crazy. I mean, it's through the roof Uh, and it's worldwide. You know, there, there, there's a huge demand for them in Europe. Um, so, You know the the price tag is going to continue to be high on the really, really high end, uh, Tomalepan Mexican tiger rats.
0: So what what are they? It's like I don't know a thousand, fifteen hundred, something around there, per baby. I'd
1: I'd say you're even north of that. You know you're somewhere more like uh, somewhere more like two thousand. You know maybe even three. All right. You know, again, oh, there's not a whole lot of, of people actually marketing them and selling them, but I think you're, you're, you're more,
0: you're north of 1500, I think. Okay. I mean, yeah, I didn't know. I, I've i never kept them and I'm just kind of learning about, you know, where the, where the, uh, the line is with these guys. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's funny cause I get a lot of questions from people. I didn't used to ask those questions on the show and then I'd get done with it. Love the show, dude. It was great. But like, you know some of these rare species we don't know like like what is how much do they cost you know like who
1: right right, know?
0: so like you know, some people like to know they like to know what what kind of a commitment it is, and it, it, I think it's nice. it's good for the breeder too, so you don't have people just hitting you up that are really not sure. all that committed to to taking that kind of a leap, and, right. and it's kind of funny uh not to not to switch topics, but as i'm as I was talking with you like. It reminded me there was a question I wanted to kind of ask you like so you're really into the south american the central american Latin american stuff is specifically colubrids. why are you not working with the the bird snakes? I don't even know how to pronounce it was it sousties or just <laughs> well Seustes? the the, the genus
1: was previously Susties? Uh, okay Seustes, that's that's p s e u s t e s uh uh-huh. but uh they were recently a couple of years ago um, they they kind of reworked the whole spilotes and sousties thing and um what used to be Susti's sulfurus, which is kind of the yellow and black uh bird eating snakes from South America um right changed to spilotes. So they are actually more related to the tiger rats. And what used really? to be susti's Yeah, uh-huh. very bizarre. I Actually, I, I, I know all this stuff happened, but I don't know that I actually read the paper, so I can't speak too uh, educatedly on it. But um, uh-huh. the uh, notice, uh which is more of the Central American one, um, was changed to Phyronax, uh as the genus. So I don't think Seustes exists at all anymore, uh, if it does okay. it's with uh, species that I'm not familiar with. Um, so what was formerly Seustes is now either Spilodes or Phironax depending on the species Um, but it's interesting you say that. Um, Many years ago I did uh, buy uh, a clutch, a couple clutches of uh, first generation F1 babies Um, and I got a bunch of them feeding and I sold the majority of them uh, around and I kept um, a few for myself. And those are absolutely remarkable snakes because as babies, they're pretty drab. But the onogenetic yeah. change that they show as they age is absolutely phenomenal. And the level of variability and how the adults can look is so drastic. Um, we were fortunate enough that the babies that we held on to ended up just turning red,
0: just this blue
1: and red oh, nice. color that was just so cool. And for Whatever reason that I cannot explain, we decided to part with the project a few years ago, uh, before ever reproducing them ourselves. Uh, but that being said, um, uh, we're working on reacquiring some now. So uh, it, it's it, it's an area that we're dabbling in, and you're right; it doesn't make any sense that I that we wouldn't have this uh, in our breeding projects. So we're we're, we're
0: actually work, working on getting it back. Yeah, I know. I, I don't know how many people work with them. I know Jason Hood is is having some success mm-hmm. with them. Um, but, sure, uh, and I, yeah, and I think are... some
1: of the animals that Jason has are ones are the babies that I
0: originally <laughs> bought and
1: <laughs> raised up a little bit. So that was what I was kind
0: of that was what I was getting at. I, I was assuming that he had probably one because he loved them, and um, you know, and, and so like were the ones you bought? Were they the ones that are now? or were they the uh gosh I don't know how to pronounce no. the last name uh
1: it's a uh, Firenax postal notice uh, so the ones that I had and I'm looking to get back into were uh, postal notice so that's the that's the um the Central American one and that is now and Firenax could... postal notice
0: and, and they're kind of a pastelly they have like greens and oranges and stuff in them i mean they're pretty variable it seems like but
1: They're extremely variable. So if you look at uh, photos from the field, uh, you know, they can be anywhere from a drab olive green, you know, a dirty green to bright red to bright orange to blue to yellow uh, and then every mix of colors in between. And they're one of the more variable snakes that I've seen. Um, And I am absolutely not an authority on, you know, what babies are going to end up looking like based on what the adults look like. And what do you get when you breed this to that and whatever, I don't know, but I can tell you that it's a tough thing to figure out because you've got, you know, the, the babies are all fairly drab, you know, and who knows what they're going to grow up to look like. And the the color changes absolutely remarkable. And some of them just sort of going to stay drab their whole lives and just sort of be a, you know, a dirty green. And others are just going to be phenomenal. So uh, it's All another right. really interesting thing. I, I would I would assume that if you breed, you know, two adults that are red, that you'll the, their babies will end up looking like the parents, I would assume. But, uh, you know, again, that's speculation. We haven't actually produced them ourselves
0: yeah, I mean, they're they're pretty awesome, Matt. I I mean, they kind of, I mean, most of the pictures, that, that quintessential, you know, puffed-up throat and the ma- gap, gaping mouth that's open, you think they're pretty aggressive. I, I don't know, but I know there's a couple guys that work with them. Um, one, I, gosh, I'm trying to remember this guy's name. I think that's what he primarily works with. And uh, he says his are fairly tractable once you get them out of the cage, but... I'm not sure. Yeah, my, my experience, experience with them is that
1: they're pretty they're pretty similar to the spilocids, you know. They 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 yeah. put it more of a more of an act. Um, you know, their mm-hmm. their bark is worse than their bite, but that being said, I, I know for sure that there are some that are that are pretty ruthless and will will bloody you up, but um you know, uh the in the ones that I've kept um, it's been a lot more threat than actual biting.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, you know, we're we're pretty much out of time. I I want to go ahead and let you let you get the get back to your family or whatever you got to do. Um, and uh, I just want to thank you for coming on and spending your time. You know, talking about these things, these species that are not not really talked about that much. So I appreciate it. Cool. Well, listen, I had
1: a lot of fun, and I appreciate uh, you having me on. And it's always fun
0: to chat snakes, right? Yep, yeah, Right. Hey. That's what that's what we're we're all like each other support group, you know us uh, snake keepers. <laughs> right. So we got to keep each other in in check. So, all right, man. Well, you have a good night. And uh, for anyone that's looking to get a hold of you, they can reach out to you via what Facebook, your website. Yeah, so I so I operate
1: under Black Pearl Reptiles, and you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. Uh, we also have a website, blackpearlreptiles.com. dot com, and
0: um, that's the way to find me. Cool. Well, uh, I really appreciate you coming on, like I said. So, uh, have a good night and uh, we'll chat soon. Thanks, Jeff. Talk to you later. Bye bye, John. Bye bye. Awesome. So, that pretty much concludes the show. Um, I, I per, from a personal point, I really enjoyed having John on. I hope you guys liked him. Um, he, he has a lot of knowledge when it comes to some of the uh, less popular. Maybe that's not the right word to use, but less kept, um, colubrid species, especially from Latin America. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Uh, as always, if you guys want, uh, make sure you follow us on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Um, I do, uh, have a Facebook page, uh, for Corrales radio as well as Corrales radio.com, which is our website. But if you, want to see some merge over from the, uh, from the podcast. Uh, you can also follow me on uh, Instagram and uh, on Facebook at Godbold Exotics and uh, like, and subscribe to the YouTube channel, which just search Godbold Exotics and my channel will pop up. So you will also see a lot of crowd a lot of oddball stuff on that. So that's kind of where I was hinting at with John is, you know, filming, getting him on, on camera is, I'd like to, to do an episode with him um, on the, uh, you know, via the, the YouTube channel, which is under my, my God Exotics. But anyway, I really appreciate everybody for tuning in. Make sure to reach out to me if you, uh, you know, I welcome any feedback. If you guys want to hear about a certain species or want me to try to get a certain guest on, um, make sure you let me know because that's always well received. And uh, thanks for listening to Corrales Radio.